Let us pray for receptive hearts in the reading and preaching of God's holy word. God, you gave us the living word. Help us desire to listen to it, the power to live it, and to the faith and the faith to let it change our lives each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, the Gospel of our Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for every one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. I was uh, not raised in a Christian home. My dad is uh, an atheist in that he doesn't really believe there's anybody up there. Uh, at least that's where he was. I haven't talked to him lately. And I wasn't raised in a church home, and, and yet in high school, my last couple years, I had come to believe that there was a God. In high school, I had, I had changed something. It was, it was the old moral argument. I had, I had been looking at social justice issues, and I had come to believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong, that there is good and evil, that, that human life actually has objective life. And friends, that put my little atheist soul on the biggest slippery slope you can imagine. I slipped way down into theism. I started to believe that there had to be a God because, you know, there was no other way to make sense of actually having objective morality, right and wrong, without there actually being a ground objectively for that right and wrong. You can have feelings that something's right and wrong, but you can't throw that onto somebody else unless there's some ultimate foundation. And so I came to believe there was a God, and yet I also came to believe that I was not right with that God. I knew things about myself, about my soul, about my life, about things inside of me that were just broken and wrong. And I remember in high school, I would, I would slip downstairs when my parents were, were gone and sneak out a Bible out of the bookshelf that had been given to my mother in 1965 at her wedding. And I cracked it open for the first time decades later when nobody was looking. I remember picking it up very carefully vertically and then sliding it out so I wouldn't disturb the dust on the shelf in front of it because I didn't want anybody to know that I was reading the Bible, things kids do when the parents aren't at home. <laughs> and yet what happened is I, I became so convicted of my own sin and I was hopeless. I had no hope. I was angry. I was mad. I was broken. And I, and I was hopeless. And it was in college that I first heard the message about Jesus. It's what took hold in the 16th century, 500 years ago. It was the one thing worth absolutely shattering the unity of the church for centuries. It was worth it. It had to happen because you cannot have unity without the gospel. And it's tragic and it's sad. But if there's one thing it's worth shattering unity for, 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that precious. And friends, when it laid hold of my heart, it set me free. We're going to look at that gospel this morning. We're in Galatians chapter 3, because when the gospel fell in the 16th century, it fell like a bombshell. And nobody left unchanged. And friends, we have spent the last 500 years as the church trying to be the Lord's bomb squad to get this thing under control. But it's time to let go and to let this thing explode in your heart, in our lives, in our church, and in our city. That the grace of God, the scandalous gospel might be unleashed again. Galatians 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Follow along. It's God's word through his apostle Paul as he points back to the Old Testament that had the same message of salvation. He says this, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law, that is religious performance, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one will be justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So what do we see here? First, we see that our human condition is a lot worse than we realize. Look at what it says in verse 11. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. That means there's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. We're, we're sinful. We're corrupt. We're that damaged. And, and, and we're all condemned if left to our own, left to our own devices. And, and so we think, well, then you could get religion. You know, other people have other, other faiths and all of that. But that makes it worse. Look what he says in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law, that is everybody who relies on religious performance are under a curse. It's that bad. For it is written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. We cannot be sinlessly perfect. We're damaged. We're broken. And, and as a result, the Bible says, we are born into this world under a curse. Consider how high God sets his standard when the greatest commandment is to love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That means the greatest, we keep emphasizing this, because without it, you won't see the beauty of the gospel. It means, friends, that I am continually committing the greatest sin by violating the greatest commandment. I am doing it when I love God with 99.75% of my soul, I am committing the greatest sin. And therefore, bringing upon myself the righteous wrath of a God who is infinitely good and holy. And I joke about that because I've never been close to 99%. Um, I was born blind, uh, infinitely damaged, and I know it. 
and religion makes it worse. Can you hear the urgency here? Paul says in verse 7, it's, it's a pastor's plea to his congregation. I want you to understand, he says. This is serious stuff, eternally urgent stuff, life and death stuff. A pastor's plea to his Galatian congregation saying, please flee your religion, flee your self-righteousness, flee your empty attempts at self-salvation and trying to make yourself right. Get out of it. Get out of it while you still can. He says, I want you to understand. I remember as a small child watching the news as they explained the rumblings and the earthquakes in the state of Washington around Mount St. Helens. We have a photo of that uh, we get that slide? Um, you know, it. there's a guy who lived at the base of that named Harry R. Truman, no relation to the president, and he owned a lodge at the base of the stratovolcano, and despite the tremors and the evacuation orders and the pleas from those around him, despite warnings, he, he refused to leave the mountain, and the media loved him for it. He was a man of courage. They loved his internal strength. They couldn't get enough of interviewing him. Uh, Truman said this, he said, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. He displayed so little concern about the volcano and his situation. He said, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it, but this area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is between me and that mountain, and the mountain is over a mile away. That mountain ain't gonna hurt me. And Truman told reporters that he was knocked from his bed by precursor earthquakes, and so he responded by just moving his mattress to the basement. He claimed he would wear spurs in bed to cope with the earthquakes as he slept. He scoffed at the public's concern for his safety, and as a result of his defiant commentary, Truman became something of a folk hero. Uh, one group of, of children from Salem, Oregon, sent him banners inscribed, Harry, we love you. He also received fan letters, thousands of them, including several marriage proposals. A group of fifth graders from Grand Blanc, Michigan, wrote letters and, and brought them to tears. And in return, he sent them a letter filled with volcanic ash. He caused a media frenzy. He appeared on the front page of the New York Times and the San Francisco Examiner, and he attracted the attention of National Geographic and United Press International and the Today Show, and major magazines composed profiles of him, including Time, Life, Newsweek, Field and Spring, and, of course, Reader's Digest. Uh, one historian points to Truman's unbendable character in response to the forces of nature. On May 17th, authorities attempted again to persuade Truman to leave, but to no avail. The next morning, that volcano exploded, sending its entire northern flank down the mountain. We've got a picture of that uh, before and after. The largest landslide in recorded history and a pyroclastic flow traveling atop the landslide engulfed the entire Spirit Lake area within seconds, destroying the lake and burying the site of Truman's Lodge under 150 feet of burning volcanic debris, and Truman died instantly. We've got another photo. Now the question is this. Why didn't he escape when he could? Why did he ignore all those warnings? And it's a question that we should all be asking. 
We feel the rumblings every day. The tremors are all around us. The tremors are inside of us. Everything about this life, everything about our suffering and our pain and our hardship and our tears and our toil, everything about this life is trembling and rumbling and telling us that something is deathly wrong. The universe itself is out of whack. The planet Earth is not right. Humanity is not right. Things are not the way they were meant to be. We experience so much wrong with cancers and suffering and shame and death and all of it is telling us again and again get out while you can you're not going to hold this volcano down get out why wait until it's too late the whole universe is out of whack with god with itself with each other maybe you're here and you're young maybe you're here and you're old maybe you've been in this church 20 years maybe this is your first time in this building but i am pleading with you as the apostle paul is pleading with you don't try to hold down the volcano it's going to blow the human condition is that bad and paul is pleading he's saying i want you to understand this isn't about make-believe religion that makes us feel good and special this is about reality and the fabric of the cosmos and the fact that it's all wrong it's all out of whack and we need a savior we need rescue our religion cannot fix this our human condition is worse than we realize and yet we see something beautiful that's enough on that thank you We see something beautiful. We see something that grabbed the heart of the Protestant reformers. We see something that grabbed my heart. It's what the reformers spoke of as the great exchange. And it's what we're going to talk about the rest of this morning. Paul says, I want you to understand. In the great exchange, there are two things that happen. All our guilt goes to Jesus and all his righteousness comes to us. First, all our guilt in the great exchange goes to Jesus. It's the most massive wire transfer in human history from several billion people all at the same time transferring to Jesus, not our bank accounts, but our guilt, our shame, and our sin. That's what it means that Jesus redeemed us on the cross. Going back to those first things of the Christian story, it's what it means that he hung on a tree. It's like a credit card where you've got a credit card and you're not being real careful with it. It's kind of a lot of expenses and you get your bill Uh, on a Tuesday afternoon after work and you open up your credit card statement, it's thicker than usual and it says you owe $137 billion plus some some change. And uh, you think, well, that's not right. I haven't charged $137 trillion plus some change. And so you look at it and you start looking line by line and everything looks familiar to you. Like you think you probably actually did do all these things. And you go page after page, hundreds of pages, thousands of pages, and you realize that you really do owe $137 trillion and some change. And you don't have that much money. And you think, well, maybe there's a payment plan. Maybe I could do a dollar a year for $137 trillion years in a couple months. But, you know, that's not going to work. And the federal government can't bail you out because they can't even print that much money. It's $137 trillion and some change. And there's just no way that you're ever going to pay this debt and you're doomed and it's crushing you and right as it's really sinking in that you have no hope there's a knock at the door and you open it up and there's this jewish guy he's kind of middle eastern olive complexion he says his name's jesus and uh you you invite him in and he says hey yeah i hear you got a really big bill and he's like yeah it's really really bad he says how much is it he says it's 137 trillion dollars plus some change 
And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I got a square card reader. Uh, hand me your credit card. And he whips out his iPhone and puts his little square card reader in it. And he takes your credit card and he, he slides it through and he does some jiggery-pokery and pushes some buttons and asks you to sign its receipt. He's doing it as a refund. He, like you're, you're, He's transferring your $137 trillion plus some change from, from your bank statement to, 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 from your credit card statement to his credit card statement. And then he thanks you and he says bye. And you say, gosh, Jesus, that's really nice of you. And then he walks out the door and goes to the cross to pay down your debt. It's a massive wire transfer of our guilt from us to Jesus. And if he's done that for you, then you no longer owe that. Uh, There's no double jeopardy. He has taken that off of your shoulders and you are no longer responsible for what you have done. Uh, But the debt still has to be paid. You know, it's just because somebody forgives something doesn't mean that there's still not a payment to be made. It's just made by someone else. It's like uh, if I were to, you know, Say you've got a beautiful Harris Armstrong mid-century modern house in Ledoux overlooking a little pond, and I'm, you know, out one night, been, you know, hanging out with friends too late in places that I probably shouldn't have been drinking, and uh, and uh, I accidentally drive my Fiat 500 through the front picture window of your Harris Armstrong mid-century modern house in Ledoux. And uh, you wake up, and you and the kids and everybody there, they're like, uh, Pastor Greg, you just drove your Fiat 500 through the p- picture window of our mid-century Harris Armstrong house in Ledoux. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And they say, uh, don't worry about it. Now, if it's your house and then and, and you've got a choice, you can say, uh, Greg, you're going to have to pay for this. Or you can say, Greg, don't worry about it. We forgive you. We're going to cover it. We'll take care of it. Don't worry. Now, if you choose that forgiveness option and I, you know, managed to pull, you know, my Fiat 500 out of your living room without doing too much more damage and drive away, then you've just forgiven me. Now, now the question is, does the window immediately then go back to normal? No, it does not. So who has to pay for the repair then? If you've forgiven it, the payment still must be made, but you are paying for my sin because you have chosen to forgive my sin. And so you've got to whip out your credit card and you've got to pay to repair your big picture window. It still has to be paid for and that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is paying down your debt for you. Once he forgives you, then he has to die. And what was that debt? The debt for having opposed a high and holy and righteous creator, God. A debt for having defied one who is infinite even being born corrupt and yet adding to that corruption my own willful sin and disregard, my own selfishness and harshness and lack of care for justice and for the poor, my self-absorption, adding all of that, what is the debt that must be paid but to face the rejection of God himself, to face that broken fellowship and, and to absorb that. It's being cursed by God is the term that, that, that Paul uses in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What had to happen to me in defying a holy God is that I had to be cursed. God turning his back from me and rejecting me forever. And yet what Jesus does on the cross and paying that debt is on the cross he himself chooses to be cursed by God himself. On the cross, we see the largest concentration of guilt and sin and shame in the history of humanity. All of the guilt of all of God's people from Adam until the end of the time. All of the guilt for each lustful glance, every harsh comment, 
all of our murders and our judgments and our critical thoughts and our anti-Semitism and our bitter feelings and our prayerlessness and our racism and our failure to pursue each other for, for each unkindness and every betrayal, for all of our hate and all of our self-absorption and for all the ways that we have failed to be the very best of humanity, for every crime against God's honor, all of that piled on to Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, Jesus absorbing all of my guilt, all of your shame, taking responsibility for all of it, saying, I am the big sinner. I choose to take the blame. Blame me and the the stench of such filth in one person absorbed into Jesus, offensive to God the Father. And so what did Jesus say on the cross? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now here's the question. Did God the Father truly forsake his son on the cross? Did he really reject him? Did he really turn his back and abandon him? Did he really pour out on him the burden and and, and fire of hell itself into his person? Did he really forsake Jesus? better believe he did and because he did if you have christ he will never ever forsake you he will never ever abandon you he will never turn his back on you because jesus was cast from god's presence so that we might be brought in he was taking our payment for us he was taking our blame for us he was taking the ultimate time out in our place so that we would not face it friends we talk about the whips and the scourging and the nails and the thirst and the physical pain of the cross but that was not one percent of the suffering that jesus endured the suffering he endured was the spiritual suffering of being separated from one with whom he as the son of god had been in communion for eternity jesus who had always known the father's love and affection and presence For the first time in history, the only time in history, he cries out to his father and he hears nothing in return. Your sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That means freedom from debt. That means forgiveness. Absolute and total forgiveness. So, Greg, are you telling me that you can go out and rob liquor stores and do all sorts of horrible things and then come to Jesus and ask forgiveness and go to heaven? Yes. And the fact that that offends you tells me that you're worse off than I am. Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Jesus warns us about the wide path of self-improvement, of works-based religion, the wide path that many follow, and he contrasts that with the narrow path, the path of grace, the path that few ever find because we have to give up our religious pride to walk down that path. We have to give up our self-effort and our self-righteousness and our self-dependence and turn outward to a Savior who delivers and rescues of His free grace out of His strength and power and not our own. If you trust in Jesus, your guilt goes to Him. All of it. He takes every last little bit. There's not a little bit of guilt that you still have in your back pocket somewhere. He has frisked you down and taken every last bit of guilt from you and paid for it so that you bear it no more. That's the gospel. That's the first half of the great exchange. 
And, and, and when the gospel comes crashing into your life, it's going to shake you up. You know, as, as Jesus says, he captured your heart. Does he captivate you? My prayer is that you would taste the gospel and not just hear it, that it would go deep down inside of you and burn you on its way down. Because a human-centric religion, it, it leaves you living in fear. It leaves you constantly trying to prove yourself. Uh, religion leaves you angry because you feel like you're doing all this stuff for God and he's not being faithful to, re- to, to bless you in return. Uh, it leaves you on a performance treadmill. It leaves you angrier and more bitter and more resentful as time goes on. And yet, you, you might look successful and become very aloof or arrogant, or you might fail and spiral into depression and self-loathing, but you'll have to minimize your sin and you'll have no power to change. And people around you are going to feel judged by you. And for many, it's going to leave you feeling empty. It's not going to leave you feeling loved or cherished or full, but empty. But when you get the gospel, you live with a new freedom instead of dread, a confidence and a security and a tenacity and a vibrancy because your joy isn't based on yourself or on your experience or on your performance, but your joy is based on the one thing that you cannot lose, which is Jesus You can know you've been loved and that you're secure and you're accepted and you can freely own your own failings because your identity is no longer bound up in your performance. You're free to fail. You're free to blow it. And, 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 and you can own that you, maybe you're not such a great spouse. Maybe you're not really good at religious devotion. Maybe you do have an anger problem. You can own that and you can name it and you can label it and you can be free of it because you can, you can actually learn to experience the love and mercy and favor of God precisely at those places of shame and brokenness and sin. When you get the gospel, once barren lives start to produce fruit and hearts start getting healed and you realize that you have a Father in heaven who is crazy about you. How do you really screw up your life totally end up with the favor and blessing of God? What's the cross saying? It's saying that the responsibility for our divorce from God is placed where? All responsibility for our depravity and indifference and our selfishness is placed on whom? But on God himself, on Jesus Christ, his son. The cross means Jesus takes personal responsibility for everything that caused our alienation from God to begin with and for everything that flowed from that alienation from God. This is the joy and the liberation of Christianity because Jesus is not a moral guide telling you how to save yourself. He is a rescuer come to pay the debt that you and I could never pay. And for some of you, all your life, you've wanted to find someone who loves you, someone who'd lay down his life for you. And here you see it in the one who has done just that. This is why we call it Good Friday on Good Friday. Why would we call a Friday good when Jesus of Nazareth was brutally murdered by Roman executioners? We call that day Good Friday because Jesus was nailed to a cross instead of you. The reason we have a crucified God at the center of our faith is because it was on that cross 2,000 years ago on a hillside outside Jerusalem that judgment day came and God himself bore that judgment. God gave it and God took it. He carried the cross in all my shame and it was a very, very good Friday. In the great exchange, our guilt goes to Jesus. He's cursed instead of us. And on the cross, we see a God who loves you so much that he's willing to sacrifice himself for you, for your well-being, because he loves you and he wants to take care of you. And he saw you were needing loving and you could not fix yourself. And so he gave you that kind of love and it cost him very, very deeply. Um, There was a movie, Cinderella Man. Anybody seen Cinderella Man? Yeah, a few. Redbox it. Um, 
Russell Crowe in Cinderella Man played a Depression-era boxer by the name of James Braddock. And uh, he had hurt his hand, though, so he couldn't box anymore. And so he works as a longshoreman in Jersey. And yet the Depression has stolen all of the work, and so he's struggling to feed his family. And there's a, a poignant scene in which he gets up early in the morning. The sun wasn't even up yet, and there's no heat in the house. They're freezing. And his, his wife has collected some meager food rations, but it's him and her and, her, and their daughter. And, and so, so he and his daughter are at a table, and his wife drops down a tiny little morsel of meat. She's got two of them. She puts one in his plate and one in their five-year-old daughter's plate. And the five-year-old daughter, she wolfs hers down in like 10 seconds flat. And, and she looks up at her daddy and she says, Daddy, I'm still hungry. And so he reaches down on his plate and takes his only food and puts it on hers. And his wife is looking at him. And you can see as she looks at him and she says, Jimmy, you've got to eat. Jimmy, don't do that. You're, you're not going to have enough strength. Jimmy, you haven't eaten for two days, Jimmy. And she's saying that with her, his words. But as you look at her eyes, her eyes are saying something very, very different. Her eyes are saying, I love this man. I love a man who will sacrifice for his daughter. I love a father who will sacrifice for his kids. And that is what God has done for you. He sacrifices for us. All of our guilt goes to Jesus. And yet that's only half of the great exchange. The other half is the far more fascinating half. Because in the great exchange, Jesus' righteousness comes to you. And some of you, you get stuck. You got the first half. You know you, you've received Jesus as your personal Savior. He died on the cross. He's taking care of your sin. And, and you're therefore going to heaven. But, but you still feel uneasy before God. You still feel like, like a big ball of dirt and shame. You might have gotten your get-out-of-hell-free card, but that's about it. And you don't experience anything of the joy of being a Christian. And so Paul, to you, says, Consider Abraham, in verse 6, he believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Even in the Old Testament, you were saved. You were declared righteous, not just forgiven, but righteous before God. Verses 7, 8, 9, understand that those who believe are the children of Abraham. They are justified by faith. To justify is to declare righteous. It's to declare worthy, like Jesus in Luke 18 when he talks about you know, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. The Pharisee is bragging about how righteous he is before God. And the tax collector won't even look up to heaven, but just says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinful man. And Jesus says, it's that one, not the other, who went home, what? Justified. Righteous before God. It's the, the great exchange where, where all of the guilt I have had for 46 years goes and gets transferred, massive wire transfer to Jesus, who then takes my guilt and takes it to the cross and pays that debt in full. But the other half is Jesus, who was altogether worthy and righteous, who always did what pleased the Father. All of his righteousness, honor, worth, deserving merit transferred from him to you so that you then become righteous and worthy in God's eyes. You become, you know, the, the one who is, is the apple of his eye. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. What we see in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. To, to have imputed righteousness, it's not a term we use in English much except when talking about motives. When you impute motives onto somebody, you don't know that that's actually what they're feeling or what they're doing or why they're doing it. You have imputed motives. You've credited motives to them. And when God imputes righteousness to you, he is crediting righteousness to you that you don't actually have. Uh, that's what Mathetes 
said to Diognetus in the early 2nd century, mid-2nd century, that Jesus himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins but his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified that by, than by the only Son of God? O oh, sweet exchange, O oh, unsearchable operation, O oh, benefits surpassing all expectations, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteous one should justify many transgressors. This means you've got Jesus' resume. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this, and every time I say it, somebody comes up to me and says, that's the first time I ever heard that. And it's like the eyes have been opened. Uh, But, you know, it's like, if you can imagine, you know, looking at your resume, and and you've maybe lost six or eight jobs, can't really hold down a job, you never worked any place more than a couple months, and uh, it is just a really bad resume, and you failed out of every school you went to, so there's really no education there. And, and, and yet, you know, God gets your resume, and he looks at it, and he says, I really like what I see here. You are the best of humanity. I love the way you raised Lazarus from the dead. And when you healed that paralytic, it was just amazing. You've always done what pleases me. You are the very best of what I imagined humanity to be. I am pleased with you. And yet he still sees your sin. He's not blind. He's not hiding you. He's not covering you up like a burqa, but rather he's seeing you naked and he's clothing you in his glory, in the glory and clothing of his son. It's having a resume that you're never going to embellish. Here we see a God who clothes the naked. It's 200 proof gospel. It's not a new app for your old operating system. It's a new operating system. Gospel, it's a bombshell. And when it drills deep down into your lives, you stop categorizing people as good people and bad people. You quit boasting. You quit worrying about why what other people think about you as the gospel liberates you, as you know that you are loved by God and as that becomes the most precious thing to you? Are you experiencing the delight of your father? Do you understand uh, what it means that you are now righteous in his eyes? The story I always tell, at least twice a year, three times a year, is, is, is the, the commerce bank story where, um, you know, you've, you've defaulted on all these loans and you've defaulted on your mortgage and you got 16 credit cards and they're all maxed out and, 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 and you don't have a penny in your bank account. And on top of that, you got all these fees and you go into Commerce Bank and kind of got your tail between your legs and you feel really bad. And it's like, I walk in and, the, you know, the, the gentleman motions me over to, you know, one of the little cubicles with the desk. And you know it's bad when you go to one of the cubicles with the desk. He sits you down and he says, okay, well... Um, Gee, um, well, Mr. Johnson, uh, Pastor Johnson, you've really uh, gotten yourself in a pickle here. But uh, we at Commerce Bank believe the customer is always right. And so we're just going to clear all these debts and, and clear it all and waive all the fees and take care of it for you. And you think, well, that's really good service for Commerce Bank. And so you walk out the door, heading back to your car. And as you get back to your car, there are two things that are still true of you. One, are you forgiven at that point? Yes, you have been forgiven. Have you received grace at that point? Yes, you have received grace, but two other things that are true. One, at that moment, you are completely bankrupt. And two, at that point, Commerce Bank doesn't ever want to see your ugly face again. And for some of you, that's how you experience Christianity. 
because you understand you're forgiven, but you don't yet understand that you are righteous in the eyes of a father who delights in you and feels about you the same way he feels about Jesus, his son. Righteousness is when the CEO of Commerce Bank comes running out the door and she's frantic and she says, oh, Mr. Johnson, I'm so sorry we made a mistake. He's new here. He doesn't understand how the gospel works. So she rushes you in and you go in the lobby and you hit, hit an elevator button. You go up to the top floor and she takes you down a hallway, oak paneled, all these pictures of dead white men on the walls. And, and you get down to the corner office and she has you sit in her chair back behind her big mahogany desk with windows on two sides. And, and she says, yeah, Mr. Johnson, I am so sorry about that. That, that should not have happened. That was not good service. I am just going to sign over to you now the bank and all of its assets. And next door, we have a painter, an artist with some oil paints and a canvas. If you could stay around a little while, we'd like to capture your likeness for the wall in the lobby. That is righteousness. See, forgiveness says you can go now, but righteousness says you can come now. To be clothed in righteousness is what Jesus says. It's when you get a ticker tape parade and there are all these people cheering and throwing things at you. Good things, not normal bad things like I tend to get. Forgiveness is one thing, but righteousness is more. And the verdict is in. Jesus says, I've offered myself. I have been judged and I now judge you as altogether worthy and righteous. If you don't have work this morning, if you can't pay your bills, if you've done things you're ashamed of, understand that God loves to open the doors of his church, of his home, of his house, and bid the broken in, the hurting, those who have no righteousness of their own, people like me, the biggest sinner in the room. He loves to bid us in to his home to show his love and to display his affection and his power in raw and beautiful ways. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, friends, and he's doing it today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do give you thanks for your great faithfulness and love to us sinners. Uh, You're generous, Lord. And as we look at this table and we consider the cross on which your son died, Lord, we are ready to lift up our hearts because you, Lord, are the one who have loved us. And so we consecrate now to you the elements of this table, Lord, that you might preach good news to us sinners who have been clothed in the righteousness and the delight of your son. Amen.